You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Guillermo del Toro is the director of Kronos, Hellboy, Blade 2, The Devil's Backbone, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, and Pan's Labyrinth. His new novel, his first novel, co-written with Chuck Hogan, is The Strain. Thank you for joining me, Guillermo. My pleasure. One of the things I like about the vampire, just as a monster, is it is so flexible, isn't it? You can do anything with it, can't you? Yeah, I think that, you know, the vampire is is such a powerful, uh, universal image. You know, it, 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 few of those mythologies are universal. The dragon is another one, which exists in almost all the cultures. And it's multi, it's a, like a polyvalent uh, symbol. You can use it to represent social malaise or greed or spiritual this or, you know, it can be a metaphor for so many things. Mm-hmm. Vampirism, it can represent capitalism or it can represent this and that. And, and uh in the same vein, generically, uh, I think there are two large um, branches of it. One is the romantic vampire, mm-hmm. and the other one is the hardcore reanimated corpse, <laughs> which I am partial to. <laughs> now, I, one of the things I, I really liked about this novel was the way you incorporated uh, the traditional v- vampiric arcana yeah. with uh, forensic science. Talk about doing it. That must have been fun. Well, Chuck and I exchanged a lot of emails about... Uh, vampire biology, anatomy, and all these things, which kind of deconstructed uh, the way uh, vampires work from the inside out, and uh, and along the way answered what happens to genitals <laughs> once you get turned, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is truly a puzzling question. Uh, I, I don't think readers of Twilight will be very happy to find out what happens, <laughs> but we we at the same time we went that route and tried to incorporate really. Arcane, obscure uh, notions of vampirism that come from Eastern Europe. You know, the unleavened bread used uh, as a measure uh, against vampirism, and uh, not crossing, uh, having to be helped to cross bodies of water, uh, and this and that. And more so in the second and third book, we really trace it back to early, early civilizations as we go along, and 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 it, its origin in our mind, I think, is gonna. It's going to surprise people when they read where they come from in, in our invention. Well, I, I thought I had a lot of fun uh, with your main character, uh, Ephraim Goodweather. Tell us about creating this guy. He's a, lot of, he's a really great character. Well, we tried, one of the things we tried to keep in the book that was cinematic, quote-unquote, is, is a very dodgy and dangerous notion, which is to have the characters be thriller characters in the sense that they are not introspective. You don't get to have a literary Proustian moment in which they are looking at the Madeleine and they remember their life. It's, a, it's an action character. Therefore, they are defined by the way they react and act accordingly to the forces opposing them. You know, So it's a very, from the outside, oriented view. And creating Ephraim was really difficult because I wanted a guy that was essentially a good guy, but he was very, very flawed. He's very arrogant. He's very much uh, self-absorbed. Uh, he had a drinking problem. He had a, a family and completely neglected it. And, and to find the goodness in that guy without having to be 
self-explanatory or try to go into a flashback every five pages was difficult. And what we're trying to maintain that through the three books, that you learn about the characters by what they do. Now, uh, one of the things I think that uh, distinguishes this book, and you do things in this book that I don't think would be very difficult to do in the movies, yeah. and, and one of the things I think you do best is show us from things from the mind of the victims, and I absolutely love the scene where um, uh, Ansel Barber, oh, yeah. is for the temptation of Ansel Barber, T tell us about creating that scene. Well, it, it, you, you're going to think I'm repetitious, but that, that, that scene is almost, uh, almost verbatim in Kronos. You know, the moment, the moment that the guy stands in the fridge and looks at the plate of meat and just concentrates on the blood. You know, that, that was a scene that I... A lot of the notes in the first book came from old notions that I had from Kronos and that I, I brought to Blade too, but I could not execute uh, completely. And, and it's, it's fleshing it out. And then second and third book going completely new territory. But I tried to... I, I, we'd wrote th we wrote things from the victim's point of view many times, including, I think that I must be very proud to say this, I'm, a, I'm an arrogant man, but I will say the, 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 the moments, uh, they, they, the killings in the book are incredibly detailed, painstakingly from the point of view of the victim. The, how does it feel to really uh, have a vampire feeding on you and is not Brad Pitt? <laughs> is not uh, uh, Robert Pattinson. is <laughs> a, a living thing that shouldn't be alive, that has the pallor of a pickled fetus uh, on top of you, uh, draining your blood as you, as you witness it. I, I, we tried to get you inside that frame of mind, and, and those are moments that I'm uh, uh, quite disturbingly proud of. Well, I think that gets to, I think, one of the interesting aspects of horror mm -hmm. fiction, which is when you, when you create moments like this, and I'm thinking of the, mo the death of Mark uh, Blessig mm -hmm. is the one that I thought was just particularly wonderful. It, it's moments of uh, transformative terror where it moves to become uh, awe, and al it's almost beautiful, isn't it? It is. I mean, there is a direct quote uh, in, in the book, and uh, that comes exactly from, from a, uh, an old text, I think is 18, it was published in 1847, I think. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a penny dreadful called Varney with a V, Varney the Vampire. Sure, sure. And the most famous passage of Varney the Vampire is a, a chapter called The Visitor in the Storm. And, and the description of the, uh, that, the, that killing includes the, the following passage, if I quote it. Something like, his hands... Uh, corkscrewed the curls on her hair, and I literally used that and quoted. I mean, there's 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 sort of a transfiguration of quotes in the movie. I tried to quote the the ship in Dracula, the Demeter. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, instead of the ship in Dracula is now a plane. You know, I tried to do a riff on Abraham Van Helsing with Abraham's Atrakian. You know, and 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 there is a sort of a bleak. Uh, uh, references to famous vampiric books that have affected me as a reader, but the combination of them, you know, is what I think makes it quite unique and strange. And uh, another notion was Dracula, when it was written by Stoker, it was meant to be a pulse-pounding modern thriller. It was using uh, trans blood transfusion, which was cutting-edge science, like DNA profiling almost, and uh, typewriters, 
voice recorders. You know, they, they, Stoker used all this modern cutting-edge paraphernalia at the time, and the rhythm of the novel, which is a, an epistolary novel written based on documents, diaries, uh, newspaper clippings, this and that, had a, an incredible rhythm. And I tried to replicate that and, and make, make it uh, into a modern novel. Now, you know, the, the Beatles are actually in town today. Uh, Sir Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, uh, Yoko Ono, and, and, and Harrison. And this is appropriate because their favorite book back in their acid years was a book by uh, Philip K. Dick called The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. And I love that you used Paul Eldritch Palmer shows it here. <laughs> well, the, the idea, I mean, it is, it is a, as I said, an oblique quote, and a lot of people will get it, a lot of people won't. But uh, I, I I love to I love to I, I it's um, it's something I love in the authors uh, in modern people like uh, Stephen King acknowledging uh, and quoting for example in Salem's Lot the communion scene in Dracula you know where 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 he makes uh, you know where he injures his own chest and and the communion is his own blood um, you know I, I think those moments you can quote them as long as you're quoting them knowing that you're quoting them and honoring them it's great to it's great to to have that yeah, one of the things I, I really love about this book is the notion of uh, vampirism as, as a as a plague and it, it one of the things that interests me is that vampires are predators of humans in this book yeah. but the most successful predator of humans that we have right now is a disease yeah. cancer yeah. and it strikes me if cancer were intelligent, it might be like these vampires. That's exactly what the book uh, uh, posits, you know, the idea. When I was a kid, I had this idea, this notion that cancer was actually the dreams of the body, the, or bodies dreaming. And the dreams of the body, uh, the sleep of reasons produce, produ the sleep of reason produces monsters. And I always thought these are cells daring to be something else <laughs> that is not necessarily functional and that fascinated me as a kid and i put i put a line one of the lines i put in blade two is uh vampirism is a cancer and then there's a moment and they say cancer with a purpose and and that is recuperated in the book i recuperate some of those ideas and 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 the the notion that uh there's that moment in the strain where the heart, the human heart has stopped functioning, but the parasitic heart is really active and happy, you know? It's, it's a disturbing moment, that relay, the moment of relay when you're, uh, where your uh, normal system stops fu uh, functioning and the alternate system kicks in. And I really, I, I think it, it, it uh, to me, is fascinating, but I, I've been a morbid adolescent all my life. <laughs> Well, well, these are the moments that, that we, we really love it as horror readers. And I think one of the things that's interesting to me is that horror is a really great mode of, of social commentary, and there's quite a bit of it in this book, isn't there? I tried. Uh, we, we were trying very hard to, to have a, a line, a through line in the three, in the three books where we, where we are essentially going to reveal, quote-unquote, we're going to unveil or develop the notion that vampires nest in places of great tragedy. You know, they, 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 find, they find nutrients, spiritual nutrients, in, in nesting in places of social horror. And, 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 and it is my hope that they end up representing the inhuman in us. You know, the, the moments of great inhumanity is, is when the vampires flourish. 
and and uh, and and throughout the books, uh, at the end, you'll find an, an, a logical explanation why they are attracted to that uh, in their origin. I cannot rebuild more, but uh, that's the idea. One of the things I love about this book is you manage to have really have it both ways. On one hand, you have this very forensic deconstruction of vampires, but on the other hand, you have some chilling moments of, of spiritual terror too. And I'm thinking of when. Uh, the, the, the bishop, Bishop Jimmy, feels the souls, and more Lorenzo feels that, that just nameless terror. Could you talk about going back and forth and having both of those? <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, like, um, uh, when, when we were writing back and forth, I, I would send my chapters to Chuck, and Chuck will send me his chapters, and we would correct each other. And, and, and uh, I, I, uh, he was calling him Jimmy something else. And I said, no, let's call him Bishop because he delivers souls. And we started riffing on that. And, and it, it, you know, the moment, the moment also when Lorenza feels the plane as a dead thing, you know, there are moments of classic Gothic terror where she says w what scares her is not the fact that she thinks of a dead thing, but that she's thinking like that about a thing that was never alive. The plane is not an animal. And, and, and that moment where she feels it's a huge prehistoric animal standing there. I mean, I mean, those are things that I could not do on film. I can't. I cannot uh, completely use a metaphor like that on film. It does, film is objective. Film is written in the present tense. So all these moments that I wanted to create could not be made on film. Uh, another moment that is very much uh, close to my heart is uh, the chapter of Zack sitting by the window and seeing the naked man crossing the street. You know, that is, uh, that is completely autobiographical. Not that I saw it, but I wrote, I wrote that chapter early on as a kid, as a 14-year-old kid. I wrote it as a short story. And my literary teacher, creative writing, he said I was a sick man. <laughs> and, and he hated it, and he, he gave me like an F. And, and you know, 30-something uh, years later, I, I wrote it again. Uh, as Zach, uh, and I, it was, it is a, a perfect portrait of my nights as a 12 year old, you know, uh, sitting by the window in my grandmother's house, uh, second floor, looking at the street, seeing the occasional, uh, um, how do you say, pedestrian, and thinking, what would happen if he stops and looks at me? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and and, and the, 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 there are, the, the book is full of intimate moments of terror that, that come from personal experience. And, and others that Chuck created, he turned out to be a very, very, very sick man. And some of the best, most disturbing moments in the book come, come from his imagination, curiously enough. There's a particular moment uh, that, are, that has to do with worms, some of the worms and what they do that came from Chuck. And I said, really? Are we going to go there? And he said, yeah, let's try it. Now, you mentioned yourself uh, at... 12 years old and your fascination with monsters and, and you've maintained that through your life. Could you talk about that? Because I, I have that same kind of thing. I love monsters now and, and I'm wondering how, uh, one of the things I like about this kind of fiction is that it allows me as an adult to connect back to that primal terror I felt as a child. You know, I think uh, there, there, if, if we agree that the notion, uh, that the notion of um, spirituality is completely linked with the, with the, with the idea of mystery, if you do not have mystery in your life, uh, if you only have fact, you don't have a spiritual life. You completely desiccate it, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, monsters are incredible machines of mystery. You know, they generate awe, 
which is so scarce in our modern life. Mm -hmm. We don't have all anymore. Everything is, you know, we are blasé about everything. And, and therefore, uh, and they are so linked with art. Because I, I, I believe it was Magritte that said a beautiful thing that says uh, something like the, 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 the duty of art is to create mystery something like that and and I agree with that and if the duty of art is to create mystery it is the duty of art to create monsters <laughs> and not only angels but also monsters and 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 I believe it connects us to a place where we can believe and implicitly we can believe in the beauty too you know by by acknowledging the the possibility of monsters we are acknowledging the possibility of so many other things one of the things I like about this novel is the way that you depict the banality of evil yeah. it, because we have the, the concentration, the scenes in the concentration yeah. camps, but the forensic vampires and the way they're so biological, it's just a, the thrusting, mindless hunger yeah. uh, of evil. Yeah. Well, the, the idea is, uh, you know, uh, there's a moment in which, in which uh, the master, the vampire, says to Cetrakian something like, uh, you know, uh, well, he's exposed, you know, he says, I'm not the most evil thing around, essentially. You know, if you have, if the concentration camp is a place of system systematic elimination by choice, there's a moment in there where it's, it's expressed like that. And, and Cetrakian, as he escapes, he says, some, uh, the book says something like, in the absence of God, Cetrakian found men, both in the saving and in the, it was the scourge and the saving, the saviors, something like that. It, it tells you that at the end of the day, on this earth, uh, the good and evil, the worst good and evil is perpetrated by man. And, and the larger notions uh, invoke something else, you know, that is not, is not common, is not every day. And, and, and those notions are explored in the second and third books in, in, in mythical proportions, which I, I think is very important. The monsters... Uh, can seem to be banal feeding machines in the first one. In the second and third, uh, there is a very larger, a larger scale to them. Now, one of the things I like about the way this book is constructed is I get the feeling, in a sense, that though you've got three books, it's almost one book as a triptych novel. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you do very well is plant the seeds of what we can see in the future. For And you suggest some stuff that's great as in terms of what the vampires will develop to. It's only like three days since it started, but we've got we've got yeah. these horrific vampires. Yeah, and there is, and the same is true with the characters. We... The temptation to resist, and it's, it's, a, it's a temptation that will gain us some animosity because some people will just not get it and say, you know, this is badly traced or whatever, is we resisted the temptation of, of creating arcs for the characters in this book only. Like, we didn't want to self-contain them. We, uh, we wanted to say, okay, this character that you think is a hero in the second book is going to go to really dark places. Uh, or this character that you think is absolutely despicable is going to have an incredibly moving moment in the second book, and 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 and, and resisting that temptation, and uh, and uh, in the terms of the vampirism, the same thing. Yeah, there are mysteries. I, I love the idea of um, having a ragtag band of of uh, fringe characters opposing this greater force. You have a Mexican gangbanger, <laughs> you have a rat catcher, you have a pawn shop owner. <laughs> And a disgraced CDC officer going after the largest pandemic uh, ever known, you know, and 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 it is, it is beautiful to see those characters that have no real power, finding 
themselves, you know. I, I, having this, I think Satrakian is really alive when he's hunting vampires. And it's, it's such a nice thing for, you know, such a nice little guy every day. And then he gets to say, uh, you know, to, to bring out his singing silver blade. <laughs> such, a, such, a, such a crazy arc for him, but it's beautiful. Or the Mexican character, the 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 uh, the, the Gus. Gus, you know, uh, which is is a guy that uh, socially, if we were watching the news, he would be only portrayed as a negative guy that you know was robbing or doing uh, some some uh, despicable social activity. But the beauty of the um, uh, Times Square scene is that he becomes the hero of uh, characters that he, two pages before he was making fun of. And he becomes a savior. You mentioned the rat catcher. I, I love the rat catcher, and, and, and I love that the, all the research from from the the rat book, the Robert Sullivan book. Talk about uh, creating and and the way you created this character. I didn't. That is that character is the uh, is the fabrication of Chuck Hogan. He he came up with the notions and characters that were not in my original plot, uh, and uh, you know. I can take I can I can take pride on Abraham Zetrakian or Ephraim Goodweather and this and that, but uh, Basili Fett is a notion that that Chuck came came with. He said, "What if we put this massive rat catcher into?" And I go, "That's absolutely brilliant." I knew the book because I'm addicted to subterranean uh, sort of uh, sociology and fringe sociology, you know. Uh, and and I, I I read the book about rat catching and and rats and us. And, and I loved it, and, but when he brought it forth, I thought that's exactly the way to deal with these vampires because they are essentially vermin, you know, and, and, and these notions came from him. He's such a brilliant partner, and we had such a great partnership, and I, I would be a very despicable man taking credit for, for his creation. Well, I have to say the writing is absolutely seamless. I, I, it's, it's, you guys uh, achieve uh, the same hive mind your vampires achieve. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can say that every time I read uh, uh, or somebody says there's purple prose in there, I think it's mine. Because <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a lover of the purple and incredibly elaborate uh, prose of Rod Serling, for example, that used to be such a master of, of uh, overwriting in a brilliant way. And, and, and I attempt uh, some purple prose here and there, but we ended up having a seamless uh, blending because we were our first editor, mutually. He, I, I was merciless with his chapters. He was merciless with my, with my chapters. Uh, I rearranged chapters halfway through the process. He very <laughs> subvertitiously all of a sudden, I would get the manuscript, and it was missing one chapter that I wrote, or half a chapter that I wrote. So you know, we ended up, uh, you know, um, in a great collaboration there. Could you talk about the the bigger arc of this book a little bit? It, it's very interesting, as you say, the way you've got you set set things up. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk about the the series where you see it going? Well, the the second book uh, it starts going much more into into where they come from, the ancient lore. You get to learn a lot of what happened to Satrakian between World War II and now. And there's one really great story of him and one of the, uh, one of the vampires in Amsterdam that I, I really love. And Chuck came up with a, 
a really twisted thing for that. And, 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 and we, we go more with Zach. There's a long interlude in the middle of the book where, where we just see Zach being haunted by things that are really uh, not even hinted at in this book. And, uh, and the end of the book is going to shock a lot of people, the second book. It has a huge surprise at the end of the second book. Really, like, one of those that I, I think is, is quite uh, devious, actually, of us. It's quite devious how we end the second book. Because it's like, okay, now you got to wait a year. <laughs> but and the, and the third book deals, I think, with the grander. You know, we know now where they come from, and we know now what it needs to be done and why they were coming back uh, cosmically, cabalistic, uh, cabalistically, why they were happening at this time. And now you know the duty, uh, what has to be done, and it's it's a huge task. And, and when Ephraim realizes what has to be done, and, and he feels completely inadequate to deal with it. So, you know, it, it, we, we traced the arc early on. I traced it originally on my own, but Chuck and I have now worked together an arc that we feel comfortable with. You mentioned Zach, and I really like Zach as a character because one of the things his interludes point out is how blood-soaked the culture we live in already is. He's listening to My Bloody Valentine. He's playing <laughs> these video games where he's killing people, and he knows that a machete is a better weapon than a sword because you don't have to reload it. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, and at, at the same time, what what is great, which is something... I really love about kids is you know we can we can we always get very pure, puritanical about what the kids watch what the kids do and 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 I think at the same time you see Zach as a really good kid you know and as a really good kid that when he's confronted by real evil and by real things he's not reacting like in a video game you know he's reacting in a completely visceral and, and quite quite a startled way, and 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 in the second book he, he gets a little more startled than this, and, and and the notion originally the notion was that the strain the title the strain came from both the virus and the the marital uh, battle, the custody battle, that was the strain the strain in in Ephraim's life, trying to get his son and the strain of the virus, and and and. Uh, that's why one of my favorite moments occurs towards the end of the book when you realize what, where the marital custody is going. Which <laughs> is a moment where you go, okay, it's going to take a little longer. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think I, I'm very proud of, uh, of um, how we end the book. I really think we managed to give a resolution to the, to the book, but leave a lot of things, enough things hanging that you're interested in. And I, I, I'm particularly in love uh, with the last line, you know, which tells you where the character is going to go <laughs> in the future. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit uh, of, about um, the, the strain of the marriage, because one of the things I think this works well as is a, a way of, of commenting on how complicated our lives are. Yeah. Well, you know, there is a moment, uh, there is a moment of uh, simplicity uh, in which uh, F has to essentially save his kid that transcends any custody talks, any lawyers, any mediators, any child psychologists, social workers talking about things. And there is a, a, a simplicity and an elegance to, to a father being able to be a father without all that mediation, you know? We wrote it like that because we thought it illuminated the characters. You know, it, illuminate, it illuminates Kelly 
she is a, a character that is incredibly controlling and wants to be everything in life, you know, has a place and should be in that place. And you have this guy that riffs a lot more with life and, and their battle for the kid and what it does to the kid is, is, is an intrinsic part of the narrative. And, and the character of Kelly in the second book becomes a really interesting character, the, the mother. You know, where we take her and what she does is really interesting. But, uh, but, uh, but it's trying to say, you know, when things get back to basics, sometimes they have an elegance <laughs> that surpasses the, all these other kind of blood-sucking creatures that are lawyers and <laughs> litigators and, and all this type of uh, social structure that seems over-implicated, over in my view, it's over-implicated in daily life. You know, when you when you uh, uh, rule and legalize things to some extent, where you know you can become so happy, you know you know can you can be lawsuit happy, or you can become incredibly pernicious in in in, in a family life. I, I'm fascinated by the perversity of the ambivalence of law. You know, law and justice are such different things. Well, that comes across in the character of the lawyer who is originally turned into a vampire, yeah. and also into the reaction of the of the CDC. Talk about the, that kind of bureaucratic meets the the superstitions, the spiritual, really. Well, you know, when I was a kid, I used to be absolutely, absolutely my hero of all heroes was Carl Kolchak from the Night Stalker. You know, and the reason why I loved Carl Kolchak is because this guy was. Uh, 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 this poor guy with with rotting tennis shoes and an old camera and the same suit every day, and he was facing eternal evils coming our way. You know, rakshasas from Indian mythology or undead zombies with the Haiti voodoo uh, lore. I mean, it was just a crazy universe, and 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 I always thought, well, it would be great to to put the bureaucracy of a real institution that that reacts much more slow than than uh, sometimes their um, sort of um, forces of opposition need. You know, like the, the reaction of of a, an institution to a pandemic, it's always going to be slower than than the pandemic seems seems to demand. You know, there will be death people, and and if you find a pandemic that is fast enough and socially uh, invisible. You're gonna find you're gonna find the seeds of uh, of great tragedy, and I thought you know. Uh, so the way I, I would love to tell you the way the second book opens, but it, it opens exactly addressing that. It it, it the the opening phrase. Uh, I won't spoil it. I won't spoil it. But 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 it, it is about how slow the the CDC was to react. And the lawyer the lawyer character who who is thinking dubiously. Who can I sue? You know, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna become a rich person. You know, from this occurrence. I mean, it's it's, it's such a uh, the banality of evil is also really. I, I love one moment in the book, which is the moment the goth rocker takes off the makeup and takes off the contact lenses, and he looks worse <laughs> without them. He re he realizes he all the theatricality he had been living now it's a reality, and uh, and uh, you know I think that moment tells you that culturally enthroned quote-unquote evil facing the reality and banality of that, the fact that you are now an undead thing. It's a, it's a good juxtaposition, I think. 
this book also has a, a lot of really interesting kind of uh, funny moments. Humor is uh, horror is always a good uh, mm-hmm. you know source of uh, humor. Could you talk about working in a humor that doesn't deflate the terror? Well, you know, there there is all sorts of humor in the book in the sense that uh, the way you react to something that extreme, the line between what's funny and what's scary is, you know, for example, the 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 fat the fat vampire in Times Square. You know, the, the first time you see it, people are just laughing. Look at that guy. You know, but the moment that guy keeps coming and what happens, and you go, oh, my God, that funny guy is doing that. You know, it's, 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 it's a seamless moment of transition between human, humor and horror. You know, and, and, uh, and, and the way, and generally, I think, uh, the blasé attitude of this inoffensive pawn broker, <laughs> you know, that comes out and says, oh, yeah, we're going to have to, cut their head <laughs> to really kill them we're gonna have to now cut their head you go, oh, really oh, that's what and i have a sword for it and you go <laughs> this is an alternate or the encounter between the pawnbroker and the and the gangbanger in jail when they're talking about did you rob me once <laughs> i think i remember you and i never robbed you because you know it's it's really i think it's peppered with those great moments chuck is really great at it and and I bring my own twisted sense of humor, and I I, I was blessed with a great partner for this, and and uh, and many of those moments come from the factual writing of of Chuck, you know, juxtaposing a particular uh, banality against a great horror. As a a writer of films and a, a writer of novels, could you talk about the kind of the process for you going between the two? Do you do the two at once? Does it the one does one affect the other? Well, it, it, it does. I mean, the, the the beauty is there. There's the, there's a lot of uh, stuff that obviously you cannot do in either medium, and and you can choose where you do it. You know, it, it for example, to me, is an incredible liberation to be able to talk about. Um, about uh, metaphor, uh, because in film, uh, metaphor is a very tricky thing to do. Mm-hmm. Film has a way to be objective mm-hmm. and uh, present tense oriented. And in the novel, you can, for example, go and talk uh, about Zach sitting at the window for an entire chapter or talk about the burning hole in, in Treblinka and how that nests inside of his heart. And, 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 you know, that's a literary device. You cannot objectively show that. You know, it's, it's, it's metaphorical and you're, you're using it to create a sense of, uh, of uh, a spiritual uh, malaise and, 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 and a sense of downfall in Centrakian. And, you know, you, you cannot do that on film. What are you going to do? Yuxtapose a burning hole in the chest? It, it becomes pejorative. So it's great for me. It's a great liberation to be able to, to feel freer in, in, in writing the book uh, and then feel really restricted. The, the, the thing that the discipline that uh, film writing gives you and that I hope we apply to the book is rhythm. You know, we really wanted to have the rhythm of something where ev- short chapters with a lot of things happening and a very good sense of forward motion, if we could. You know, it takes, because the book takes a long time to get going. We knew that we were going to have a very slow build on the beginning. Where Things are being sort of presented, and little by little, and then start, go fast, finish, finish big, and then you know on to the next one. I, I had a lot of fun with Satrakian and his weapons, the, the weapons he he creates and, and has in the back of his pawn shop. Could, could you talk about uh, creating that character and his weapons cache? 
Well, you know, I, I, you, you always think, well, what could he afford? What could he really afford? And, you know, you can only afford the most, the most basic stuff. Obviously, as a pawnbroker, he's going to be hoarding silver. So, uh, and he's going to be getting some knowledge, but it's very basic. It's, it's very guerrilla, guerrilla-style weapons. We, we come, Fett, Vasily Fett comes up with other weapons in the second book that, are, that come from his knowledge of rats. So, you know, it, it's really, it, these guys are completely inadequately, you know, these are not superheroes with unlimited funding. These are guys that, that essentially have to cope with I immense evil with their uh, salaries <laughs> within their budget. So, you know, Satrakhan's, the most beautiful weapon is his uh, sword cane, I think. It's really an old world and, and it's, uh, it, you know, it comes from the old world uh, and it's a notion that evokes 19th century Victorian uh, weaponry, you know. It has an old world charm. You mentioned uh, the Victorian uh, feel, and this book has a bit of that too, even though it's kind of a, a pulse-pounding modern thriller. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about, uh, you know, your influences in that kind of literature? What, what kind of vampire books did you read as a kid? I read, curiously enough, I read mostly um, factual vampire books in, in the sense that they were treatises on vampirism. Uh, books that were written, uh, you know, in the 1800s, 1700s, that that presented facts and oral tradition, that organized systematically, you know, uh, refutations of spirits and and or cataloging of spirits, you know, by Don Don Agustin Calmet or uh, um, uh, Montague um, uh, Montague Summers or uh, you know the 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 sort of factual studies of vampirism and 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 I was enthroned entranced by those when I was a kid the first book that threw me there was a small paper back in Mexico called living vampires dead vampires and it literally cataloged Eastern Europe uh, oral tradition folk tales about uh, how to deal with vampires and so forth one of the things that uh, impacted me as a kid in one of those books was the fact that in Polish uh, in certain areas in Poland, uh, the vampire is represented to have a stinger in the tongue, like a bee. Mm -hmm. And that immediately, you know, imprinted in my mind, and you can see it on Blade, you can see it on this book, uh, and the notion of an alternate biology pff, was nascent, uh, it was born there. In terms of vampire books, I read uh, all, you know, all the classics, Polidori's Vampire, uh, Dracula, uh, Dracula's Guests, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. And I read uh, Stephen King, Richard Madison, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I, I believe that uh, I connect more, my strongest influence comes from the factual, quote-unquote, vampire books. Now, you're over here briefly taking a, a, a break to promote the book while you're back in New Zealand working on pre-production mm -hmm. in The Hobbit. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit how that's going. Well, I'm in paradise. I'm, I'm 44 years old, and, and I finally am living in the life of a child, <laughs> and the blessed life of a child. It took me that long. It's like Picasso said, it took me so long to finally learn to draw as a kid. I feel the same way. You know, I, I, it took me 44 years to perfect my childhood, and I found it in New Zealand. I, I wake up every morning, I go to work, and we are creating monsters, writing about creatures, uh, uh, plotting adventures. You know, it's just completely magical, and in a magical land. I think uh, New Zealand is naturally a blessed 
place to be. It's a very magical place, but unassumingly so. It's just, you know, and that is very much like Mexico where, you know, you can be having dinner in Mexico and you can say, I saw a witch fly over my house and people go, oh, really? <laughs> Was that Thursday? Because I saw one on Friday. I've been speaking with Guillermo de Toro. His new book is The Strain. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. And uh, thank you for supporting the book. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.